A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too. And this is a good old-fashioned episode of Stuff You Should Know. That's right. But before we get going, we want to make a plea to cough up just a little bit of dough for our friends at Coed. If you don't know, our friends at Cooperative for Education, who break the cycle of poverty in Guatemala through education, we're trying to get to a million bucks donated by the Stuff You Should Know family. Not mm-hmm. army. This is the family. Sure. And and we're getting close. So uh, where can they go to do that? They can go to cooperativeforeducation.org slash S-Y-S-K. And every little bit helps. Large donation, small donation, doesn't matter because they're all going to be pulled together and get us to $1 million donated from Stuff You Should Know listeners. Which would be great. And you got another yeah. little piece of housekeeping, <clears throat> right? Yes, I wanted to thank a guy named Daniel Murgatroyd, who is a rather talented painter, who a while back noticed a a picture of um, Momo that I posted on uh, Instagram, and he offered to paint it. And he sent me a straight-up amazing oil painting that looks just like the photograph. So we have a wonderful oil painting of Mo, and I just wanted to thank him for that and tell everybody to go check him out on Instagram, Daniel Murgatroyd Art, M-U-R-G-A-T-R-O-Y-D Art. Uh, He's really, really good. So, And I think he might be accepting commissions, by the way. Oh, I'm going to check that out. No Marvin Martian jokes, I promise. No, I always think of Jam On It. Um, I think uh, that's one of the little... Uh, Gremlin's sisters is named Murgatroyd. No, I always think of Marvin Martian, Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about him. I was never a big fan of his. He was creepy. Mm, I liked him. Okay. I thought he was very uh, funny. We also need to shout out Worldwide Words. If you've never been on Worldwide Words website, it's amazing. The guy, Michael Quinlan, who ran the site, is he just really did some amazing work of digging up word origins and etymology and all that. And then Grammarist is another really good site that we drew from, among many others. But those two were the ones who deserve the biggest shout-outs. Yeah, we've done something like this before. And I think every couple of years we'll probably throw out another word and phrase origin episode because it's always fun to look at this stuff. I'm an enthusiast of phrase origins. Mm -hmm. And we're going to kick it off with the old on-the-wagon phrase. You were mm-hmm. on the wagon. Uh, that means you are not drinking. You are sober. Ah, oh, I can't have that drink, man. I'm on the wagon. Right. 
Right. And this one's awesome because we actually know pretty much with 100% certainty where it came from. Um, but first, before we get to that, let's talk about a couple competing theories. One of them is from our friends across the pond in the UK, mm-hmm. who apparently, um, back in the day, if you were being taken to jail or you were being taken to the gallows, you would be taken by wagon or cart, and the um, very gracious constable uh, or jailer would stop at a pub and let you have one last drink. And then after you had that drink, you would get back on the wagon, Mm -hmm. never to drink again. That's right, because you're about to go get your head chopped off. (laughs) Right. So (laughs) I don't even know if that happened, but whether it did or not, it's not the origin of on the wagon. Sorry, Brit friends. No, it's a good one, though. And it's funny, anytime you do research on phrase origins, there are always a lot of competing theories. And a lot of them sound really fun, and you will probably repeat some of them, but a lot of them aren't true. No, but these are vetted, man. We we really worked hard to make sure that this one really, really is accurate. All right, so moving on a little closer, but not quite there. This sort of dances around the true origin. Uh, but this one takes us to America. We don't have to go across any pond. Uh, Because we're here already. And uh, (laughs) the temperance movement is what we're speaking of, where uh, if you listen to our episode on, uh, what's it called when they got rid of all the booze? Prohibition. (laughs) Prohibition. Mm -hmm. It was led by the temperance movement, which was a movement of uh, uptight people who said, you shouldn't drink, no one Mm -hmm. should drink, and we're going to make it really hard for you to drink. So Mm -hmm. the temperance movement was really happening, and they would go through towns at times, preaching abstinence and literally like parading through town and they would almost like a a church invitation would call people uh, to take the pledge, like come up and take the pledge and say, you're not going to drink this devil's juice anymore Mm -hmm. and sign this thing swearing that you're never going to take a drink again. And here, after you've signed it, why don't you just jump on this wagon we're riding around on through town and Mm -hmm. you can beckon others to do the same. And that is where the origin of On the Wagon came from? (laughs) Always such a good actor. Uh, Not quite. It's good and it's close. Again, it dances near it, but that is Mm -hmm. not quite right, right? Right. Uh, It turns out it did have to do with the temperance movement and their pledge and people taking the pledge. But it wasn't a parade wagon that was being referenced. It was what was called a water wagon or a water cart. And back in the day... Around the time of the last turn of the century, there were lots of towns out there that had just nothing but a dusty dirt street. There was no pavement, no oyster shells, no cobblestones, nothing like that. And on dry days, that dirt could turn to dust and blow in your face. So the water cart would be a a cart of non-potable water, non-drinkable water, that a horse would draw that would just kind of spray the the road down to keep it from being dusty. Yeah, it's what they call in the film business a wet down. (laughs) <laughs> sure. Except they usually do it on asphalt streets to make it look cooler at night. Right. So uh, I don't know if they did it for that, but this no. was more this was more practical. But the point was the water in the water cart, you did not want to drink. No. So when somebody who'd signed the pledge said something like, I'd rather drink from the water wagon or the water cart rather than take a strong drink again, that is the origin of I'm on the wagon. That's what Here they were go. saying is – I would rather drink this nasty water than drink a, a, a glass of whiskey again. Yeah, that's a good one. 
I thought so too. And then Water Wagon became just the wagon. And apparently by 1904, there was a, an article in the Davenport Daily Leader that said a man fell off the water wagon and they felt obligated to say this was a real water wagon, not the right. figurative one. So it was at like least he's not in, drinking in, booze. Right. In yeah. widespread use by 1904. All right. I like that. I do too. That was a good one. All right. Uh, this one, I guess we're just going to have to get into this because this one bothers me. That is exception that proves the rule. Okay. Because I fully understand what this means, and I get it, and I didn't know anyone had any problem with the phrase, the exception that proves the rule. Oh, really? So, like, the, the original and proper use of it, that's what you—that's uh, the only one you're aware of? I mean, I just—I know—I I feel like I know what it means mm-hmm. and that— I don't understand the confusion of what it means. Well, let's explain what some people are confused by. So okay. uh, the, a lot of people out there think that the the phrase, the ex- exception that proves the rule, is talking about like an outlier, an exception, that by its very existence, it shows that the rule that it's breaking is generally true. But that That's is what how I'm, it's used. Yeah, that's not it, though. That's not correct. And it's actually kind of nonsensical if you dig into it. I don't think so. I think that's how modern people use it. I think this is a case sure. of changing language. Yes. And I think it's very easily understood. Like, if I say I hate all mushrooms, but I like portobellos only, then that is an exception that that generally proves the rule that I hate all other mushrooms. Okay, but let me under let me explain why it's actually nonsensical. Like, yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right. So many people use it like that that it has come to mean that as well. But we're talking about like the original version, which is still holds the same meaning too. It's still a useful way of using it. It's not like archaic or antiquated. Right. But I, what I'm saying is, don't get your hopes up that you're going to convince me that it's nonsensical. Okay, that's fine. I think it but makes let me perfect sense. Let me explain why you're wrong. So um, <laughs> there's an there's a adage that you only have to find one white crow uh-huh. to disprove that all crows are black. But does that mean that that one white crow also proves that crows in general are black? I would say no, because how many white crows are out there, right? Sure. It doesn't mean anything. It just means the one thing that crows not all crows are black it doesn't it doesn't show also that crows are generally black that's why it's generally considered nonsensical yeah i don't buy it <laughs> there's a second way to do it too um okay. that that says um that really emphasizes the proves part the yeah. exception proves the rule but they don't mean prove as in like i proved it it's it's uh it's inarguable they mean it in the scientific term of of test the validity of yeah that Makes sense, but that's not what it was originally intended to mean either, though, right? No, and another good example is um, let's say you have a, a rule that says you shouldn't put pants on horses. Okay. And an exception to that rule might test the validity, the viability of that rule. So there's one guy who puts pants on a horse. Yeah, always one guy. Ho- yeah, <laughs> that guy. The horse trips, breaks a leg, and that horse has just shown that that rule is pretty valid that you shouldn't put pants on a horse because that rule protects horses. Makes sense. Way more <laughs> sensical than the one that, that you subscribe to. But finally, we reach, Chuck, the the original version, the original meaning of the exception that proves the rule, and I think it's beautiful in its elegance. Well, it is, and I, and I guess this is how I used it with the mushrooms, and this is how I always took it to mean, 
Mm-mm. which was the the use of the phrase is basically that the presence of an exception proves that a rule exists. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I could see how you you there's an interpretation of your mushroom statement that 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 follows. I, I hate mushrooms. That. I hate them, but I like portobellas. That basically proves that I hate all other mushrooms if I only like one. Yeah. You know? Okay, so yeah, I think it's the phrasing of it that's throwing me off. Because okay. typically when you're using the exception that proves the rule correctly, um, a, an example of it is um, free parking on Sundays. Uh, this that's made, an, I didn't like this one. This made my brain hurt. Okay, but listen, that's an exception be, that suggests that uh, there's a rule that all the other days of the week you have to pay to park. There's an exception that's posted that proves that a rule exists. Mm-hmm. Okay? No shirt, no shoes, no service. The fact that a, a store would feel obligated to post that sign mm-hmm. suggests that elsewhere you can wear go without shoes or, or a shirt. See, I don't know if I buy that because that to me doesn't mean <laughs> that. That to me means that at some point someone came in there without a shirt and people complained. So they said, well, we got to have a rule now. Right. But that, right. But I don't you think it don't says anything about other restaurants. I disagree. Okay. So um, that's but that's how you, that's how you're supposed to use it. And the reason why this is the original version is because it's ac- it actually comes from medieval law. Yeah, it was. Uh, I believe there was a Latin phrase. Mm-hmm. I love reading Latin. Uh, exceptio probat regulum in casibus non exceptus. Uh, <laughs> the exception confirms the rule, and the case is not expected. Accepted. Accepted? What did I say? Expected? <laughs> <laughs> I got a question for you. Let's go back okay. to no shirt, no shoes, no dice. All right. So you're saying if you walk into a restaurant and it says no shirt, no shoes, no service, mm-hmm. you would say, hey, I didn't see a sign at uh, that place, so that must mean you can go in there without a shirt on. Uh, if I stopped and thought about it, yes, that logically makes sense. But really? I don't think – I think you don't have to fixate on other restaurants. It can just mean that other places in public, you could be without a shirt and a shoe and you're not going to be arrested for it or something like that. Oh, okay. So, like, you got your shirt tied around your waist. You're rollerblading. Mm-hmm. You stop to go in to get some food. You take off your rollerblades and you're now barefoot. Uh-huh. But you got to put on that shirt and fish the flip flops out of your backpack, out of your fanny, fanny pack. Excuse me. I, I the, my the point was that this was supposed to be more understandable. And I think we made it at least ten times less understandable. All right, that's perfect. I think that means we should take a break. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. 
Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes. I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. That was fun. <laughs> I think from here on out, it's going to be pretty, pretty easy going. I think it's smooth sailing ahead because we move on to one of my favorite things that I said as a kid mm -hmm. that you don't say as much as an adult, I don't feel like, but... As a kid, when you smell something that's nasty, a lot of times you'll go, P-U. <laughs> you don't say that as an adult, huh? No. I say, who <laughs> farted? <laughs> but I don't need to ask because my daughter already had announced it. That's hilarious. Uh, P-U as in the letters P-U, but they don't even mean anything. They don't stand for anything. Right, yeah, which is pretty interesting. Um, and if you think about P-U, it's, it's totally unnecessary. You could just say that smells awful. But by adding P-U, it mm -hmm. just puts a whole luster on it and yeah. really says, that smells really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't stand for anything, but P and U in that order have a longstanding association with something offensive or disgusting. Um, and it goes all the way back to Latin, actually before Latin. There's a Latin word called puteo, which means I stink, which is probably not said that, that frequently back mm -hmm. then. <laughs> and then um, there's an even more ancient word in, from Proto-Indo-European um, language, uh, which is really, really old, P-U-H, yeah. pew. That meant rotten or foul. So that word's been around a really long time. 
Um, but again, PU doesn't stand for anything. It's just a total coincidence that those two letters put together in the English language make the same sound that humans typically make when we encounter something gross and nasty. Yeah, like, it, you know, you think of the word putrid as P-U, but it's all just coincidence. People say pew, you know, spell it mm-hmm. however you want, P-Y-O-O mm-hmm. or P-E-W. Uh, I guess even you can throw an H in there, P-H-E-W. Mm-hmm. And pew just came P-U. Right. And I think this is a great thing to keep in your hip pocket. Like, I think it's genuinely interesting that PU is just a coincidence mm-hmm. with the Latin and the Proto-Indo-European such that you could even drop some wolf bait at a dinner party <laughs> and very quickly, like, get out of the embarrassment by saying, well, here's an opportunity, actually. Did you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everyone's like, I don't even remember that you farted. Right. What's awesome, too, all, PU has only been in use since, like, the 1950s. Yeah, and it's in the OED, right? It's in the Oxford English Dictionary, spelled P-E-W, mm-hmm. and that's where P-U generally is thought to sort of come from. That's right. Pew. I like that one too, Chuck. I'm going to bring it back. Uh, let's start, okay? okay? I think we should, because it is really great. Uh, so too is the next phrase, Chuck, bury the hatchet. Bury the hatchet. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> Uh, this is a really good one. This is uh, something that you say if, like, let's say you and I are having a big fight mm-hmm. and that eventually we're— We're at having lo- a fight over what the exception that proves the rule means. <laughs> the exception proves the rule. We're at loggerheads. We say, oh, God, we got to take a commercial break, which is when we do our best fighting. And then mm-hmm. in that commercial break, I'm like, listen, man. No, actually, you say it because you're the peacemaker. You say, let's just bury the hatchet here. This is a dumb thing to fight over. And I say, Fine. And then that's it. We move on. Everything's good from that point on because the hatchet has been buried. Yes, yeah, it's, sim- it's a symbol of getting over an argument, letting bygones be bygones. Right. Um, what's interesting is that it actually started out with a, a really literal meaning to the phrase, bury the hatchet. Uh, and the whole thing comes from the Iroquois language family, uh, better known by their own term, the Haudenosaunee, Ooh, nice. which means people of the longhouse. Uh, Iroquois was the French uh, name for for this group of people that included a number of tribes up in the northeast, the Cayuga, Cherokee, Huron, Seneca, Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, and Tuscarora. And their whole jam stretched from Lake Ontario over to Pennsylvania and New York and all the way up to Ontario and Quebec, which means that they were rubbing elbows with the French, British, and the Dutch after the Europeans started to come over, which also means that ideas were able to spread among this group, which is why we're talking about Barry the Hatchet today. That's right. Uh, And if you, and I think this is a very great story, uh, according to Iroquois legend, Um, there was a treaty formed by some members of this Iroquois family, and they actually got it wrong for many years. They placed it at 1451, uh, but uh, researchers at the University of Toledo go... Rockets. Rockets. Almost said mud hens. Not right. That's the um, minor league baseball team. team. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, they got together and used oral history and astronomy data and all sorts of great documentary resources and said, actually, mm, hey, we know when it is. <laughs> it was August 31st, 1142. Yeah. So much earlier than it was believed. Uh, but in this treaty, it's very cool what happened. They got the five original signatories, which were uh, the Cayuga, the Oneida, the Mohawk, the Seneca, and the Onondaga. And they formed what was known as the, say it, Josh, Confederacy. Haudenosaunee. Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Uh, mm -hmm. The French called it the Iroquois Confederacy. Mm -hmm. But it was it was an early model of democracy in action. Yeah, and if those University of Toledo scholars are right and the whole thing was established in 1142, that makes it one of the oldest continuously yeah. functioning democracies in the world. Amazing. It's up there with the government of Iceland, the Swiss cantons, and I said continuously operating, it still functions as a government entity in upstate New York and so issues cool. passports. Yep. So it's been going since possibly 1142. And the whole reason we're talking about this is because at that meeting of, in 1142 of those five nations that came together to form a treaty, Two, two of the leaders of this, um, this treaty uh, meeting, I guess, uh, Deganawida, who is a Huron, and Hiawatha, who is either a Mohawk or an Onondaga, um, they said, hey, everybody, just to kind of keep everything peaceful and on the level, mm -hmm. let's all bury our weapons under this white pine tree and just leave them there during this meeting, and uh, we can dig them up afterward. But they couldn't dig them up, Chuck, could they? No, they thought this is a nice symbol, and it also has a side benefit that no one's going to get murdered, probably. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a river, an underground river, came and washed them away. And so they all said, hey, this is like kismet. I don't even know what that word means, <laughs> but this was meant to be. We buried, literally buried our weapons, and they were washed away underground. Mm -hmm. So this is a charmed treaty and a charmed uh, joining of nations. So that whole practice spread pretty quickly among the um, Iroquois language family tribes, um, where like if you were having like a peace treaty meeting, like the the two the two groups would bury their their um, weapons of war, um, and then like I said, the the proximity of the Europeans allowed ideas to spread, and this was definitely one of them. Um, the the Brits, the French, the Dutch. Uh, later on, the Americans, they all actually like buried weapons when they were engaged in um, peace treaty talks with different Native American tribes. And what was interesting is that some Native American tribes that had nothing to do with the Iroquois, mm -hmm. had never probably even met an uh, Iroquois or a Haudenosaunee, I should say, um, the, the Americans buried the hatchet with those tribes as well. So in that sense, the Americans actually spread a Native American idea from one group to another group of Native mm -hmm. Americans who'd never even met. Th yeah. I find that fascinating. Totally. Uh, down here in the southeast with the Chickasaw, mm -hmm. they were burying hatchets in Alabama and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's pretty interesting how a custom can spread like that. Uh, the 1790s was basically when it became sort of a common phrase in North America among English mm -hmm. speakers. And everyone still uses it. Like, people still say, bury the hatchet. Why not bury the tomahawk? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you would think that a tomahawk would be a little more correct, mm -hmm. uh, but the tomahawk was, I believe, Algonquin. Mm -hmm. We talked about the Algonquin Hotel recently, right? 
Yeah, by Hyatt. That's right. <laughs> Uh, was oh man, this is very uh, symbolic. Uh, it was not an Iroquois word at all. So that's right. Why. No, um, and apparently the Seneca um, had a word gajiwa. So you would probably more accurately say bury the gajiwa. Bury the gajiwa. So there you go. Bury the hatchet. Literal stuff. How about the next one, Chuck? I love this one. It's short and sweet, and it has Shakespeare. That's right. And the phrase is in a pickle. Yeah, which means you're in a tight spot, a tough situation. You got a problem. There's a difficulty over your head. Something like that, right? <laughs> That's right. And it always struck me as odd, and I think I might have even mentioned this before, that you can be in a pickle, in a jam, and in a stew. Oh, wow. And it's all kind of the same thing, and it's all food-related. It is. But all of it means you're, you've got a problem. You're, you're in a tight spot. That's, <laughs> That's where right. I'm going to define it as. You're in a tight spot. We're going to leave it with that. And it was Shakespeare that, that came up with this one. Yeah, so you mentioned Shakespeare, uh, the great play The Tempest. Uh, there's a line from uh, in the play from uh, Trinculo to Alonzo. Mm -hmm. I have been in such a pickle since I saw you last. I fear me will never out of my bones. I shall not fear fly blowing. Very nice. Sh shall I translate? Please. So Trinculo has, is saying he's been totally trashed since the last time he saw Alonzo. And he's drunk so much that he's concerned it's never going to get it out of his system. And that even after he dies, the flies won't even touch his corpse because it'll be so preserved by all the alcohol that he's drunk. He was Pretty in a pickle, good. which it doesn't quite make sense. What does that still mean as in a pickle? But it does make sense when you trace it back a little further. Shakespeare actually borrowed this phrase, introduced it to English, but he borrowed the sentiment and the phrase from the Dutch, who had their own little phrase, in de peckle zitten. <laughs> For Dutch, that is remarkably readable. It, it really is. There's no rando J somewhere. No. It's just all pretty straightforward. Yeah. So um, in this sense, though, Chuck, peckle doesn't mean the pickle. It means the pickle brine. Yeah, so, I mean, this is also has to do with, if you say you're drunk, you, you're pickled. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, along the similar lines of what that means, right? That you're sort of soaking in that pickle brine? Exactly. You're preserved yeah. by the alcohol, just like a, a pickle would be by the brine. Exactly. But the thing is, is that's not what in a pickle means. In a pickle means in a tight spot. So at some point, 100, 200 years after uh, Shakespeare, Samuel Pepys um, I think that's how you say his name. I've only ever seen it written. Me too. But he, he was famous for his diary, and one of the entries in his diary in 1660, he says that his house is in a pickle, meaning that's in, in a, a sorry state, in, in bad shape because it was under construction. And so Samuel Pepys was the one who kind of took that term and ended up setting it free, letting it evolve into being in a hard place, a bad state. Amazing. And you know what? I actually get to follow up on the Shakespeare episode when I was shouting out my uh, great English professor who translated, mm -hmm. just like you just translated. Somebody wrote in. You can always count on a listener. Someone who was at, at Park Hall, the English building, around the same time I was, mm -hmm. said, I bet you it was John Vance. And I looked him up, and lo and behold, John Vance, former uh, professor of Department of English, now retired and writing uh, novels. Oh, yeah? What kind of novels? It's, I read an article from uh, like four or five years ago 
uh, writing parody novels based on his professorship. Erotic parody novels. <laughs> I don't think so. But she, <laughs> she said that uh, she'd try and get the, the word to him that I was shouting him out, uh, but I just decided to do it on the show. So, Very nice. Uh, John Vance, if you're out there and you hear this, you were one of the best English teachers I ever had. Very nice, Chuck. Good stuff. I don't, I don't think there's anything we can do but follow that with a break because that's Absolutely. great stuff. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we got a few more to drop mm-hmm. on your head. Yeah. Uh, and one is one that we uh, actually messed up, and that is 
the old slippery slope, which I think a lot of people over the years, and I had heard it before you said it, have mm-hmm. att- attributed to uh, a Supreme Court justice, but that's not the case, right? No, I couldn't see exactly where it came from or even what justices used it when, but I did see it goes at least back to the 19th century. Um, but I think what's more interesting about it, Chuck, is um, it's actually a logical fallacy, and yes, it has it its own name, the slippery slope argument. And basically everybody who's walking around using the phrase slippery slope is using it correctly. Um, it just basically means if we do something take one or two steps, we're, we're entering a, a dangerous situation that could end in catastrophe just from taking that first or second step. Yeah, it's a phrase that I have always loathed. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you say something is a slippery slope, it's always, it's never like, uh, hey, if, you know, if your kid's hanging out with the, the, the kids smoking by the dumpster, it's uh-huh. a slippery slope and they could end up smoking too. Like, right. that makes sense. It always is some really far-off extreme where you say then your kid's going to end up on heroin one day uh, if they hung out with the kids smoking by the dumpster. Right. It's always taken to this really far extreme, and it seems like it's used a lot in political arguments where it, just the dumbest things are said about, you know— if we allow gay marriage, then then what's to stop us from marrying our pets and things like that? It's just it's <laughs> right. so infuriating. It is, and and you're right. I think you kind of nailed it. Like it goes from we could try this to ca- catastrophic problems. Yeah, and the reason it does that is because the slippery slope argument is is used to scare somebody else into agreement. That's right. <laughs> it's basically saying like, hey, this new thing that you're talking about. Sounds great on its face, but do you realize that if we do that, the world will literally end? And the other person goes, oh, well, I don't want the world to end, so we should probably not do that thing I was suggesting. That's right. Uh, And what the problem is, as far as the logical fallacy goes, is you are predicting an outcome that cannot be predicted. Uh, It's literally just sort of making something up to scare people into submission of not doing anything. Yeah, um, there's a guy named James Graff who wrote an article about it in The Week in 2013. And he said the reason why it's it just doesn't make sense is because he said there's no reason to reject doing one thing just because it might open the door for some undesirable extremes. Permitting A does not suspend our ability to say, but not B, and certainly not Z. Exactly down the line. And he also points out something I think is really important, too, that if you, with the slippery slope argument, the whole point is to say all these terrible things can happen. And if you just focus on that, you're never going to do anything. That's right. Scared into inaction. Exactly. Nice. Um, And the thing about the slippery slope argument is the the more you look for it, the more you see it everywhere. I mean, it is everywhere. And once you realize what you're actually, what's actually being done to your your psyche, it's it's kind of um, annoying at that point. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, So yeah, so you're you're right to loathe it. I think I'm I'm with you on that. All right. So moving on to a phrase that I always very stupidly assumed was French, que sera, sera, the great song, right. whatever yeah. will be, will be. For some reason, it always sounded French in my head, mm-hmm. but now that I'm looking at it, K, Q-U-E, is 
clearly like some variation of Italian or Spanish. I don't know why I always thought it was French. It just sounded French to me. It does sound French. You're absolutely right. Uh, other people think Italian, maybe. Sure. What's interesting is it's it's both. It's also neither, and it's gibberish. It turns out in both languages. But the upshot of the meaning of que sera, sera, <laughs> is that um, the way it's translated is whatever will be, will be. And it's a, it's a reminder to kind of take like a relaxed attitude toward life. Take life as it comes. Accept it and enjoy it. You can't, you can't really predict the future. Don't try. You'll just fail. That kind of thing. That's right. Uh, and it comes from the Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Mm-hmm. And it was sung by Doris Day very famously in that movie. It became a, a big, big hit for Doris Day. Uh, but it was written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, who were a very, uh, I don't know about how famous, famous they were, but within the industry, well-regarded yeah. as kind of pumping out these big hits during the heyday of, of this sort of uh, songwriting. Uh, what was the, uh, we did a podcast on it. The um, Tim Pan Alley? Tim Pan Alley. Was this then? I thought Tim Pan Alley was way earlier. Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, these guys would be Tim Pan Alley all the way then, agreed. I might be wrong. But uh, they had big hits with uh, Mona Lisa, Men Have Known You, mm-hmm. and Silver Bells, a great Christmas song. Yeah. The theme to Bonanza, another great mm-hmm. song. The theme to what Mr. Else? Ed. Mm-hmm. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. Yeah. And uh, Jay Livingston, one of the writers, was the voice of Mr. Ed, he too. did Mr. Ed. I always heard a rumor that they put peanut butter in Mr. Ed's mouth <laughs> to make him... Flap his gums like that. And he hated peanut butter. I'm not sure. No, I bet a horse loves peanut butter. Uh, so they wrote the song for the Hitchcock movie, but they actually kind of stole the phrase. Not actually kind of. They definitely stole the phrase from another movie, The Barefoot Contessa. I'd like to say inspired. I think they do too. But in that movie, Ava Gardner's character, um, her family motto is inscribed on her Italian via, villa. And it's <laughs> que sera, sera, but they spelled it C-H-E. And what's interesting is the guy who wrote and directed the Barefoot Contessa, Joseph Mankiewicz, who I think that's the guy that they made Mank about, right? That's one and the same? Yeah. He um, apparently did his homework because que sera, sera did originate as a family motto, not in Italy, but with uh, the first Earl of Bedford in England in the 16th century, interestingly enough. Right. So put a pin in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Livingston and Evans are inspired enough by this phrase to immediately write this song uh, and then wait a couple of weeks for Hitchcock to come calling because I guess they want to make it seem like they really took their time with it and came up with a, a true original for Hitchcock, for Hitch. Right. Yeah. And I don't understand this response from Hitchcock. Uh, is this what he really said? I don't. I don't quite get it. His quote was, gentlemen, I didn't know what kind of song I wanted, and that is the kind of song I want. Okay. Just a little clumsy, I guess. It is a little clumsy. You could also take it as like a subtle dig. Oh, yeah? I could, believe me. (laughs) The the song was a big hit. The movie was a big hit. Like I said, Doris Day, who apparently did not like it at first, uh, but it's a song that's really closely associated with her because Mm -hmm. she, you know, sang it over and over in performances over the years. But it was a number two hit in the U.S., number one in Britain, and won Best Original Song in 1956 at the Oscars. Right. So, huge song. 
Why is it gibberish is the big question that we face now, right? Right. So the Earl of Bedford, the motto, K-Sara-Sara, C-H-E-S-A-R-A-S-A-R-A. It, it is Italian, and it does mean in Italian what will be, will be. Okay? So that's what the words mean, but it's not grammatically correct, right? No, it should be Kelke sera sera. Ah. And the reason why is because K means what, and sera sera means will be, will be. But what is almost like if, if, if you were saying what, like in English, as a response to somebody calling your name, will be, will be. It makes about that much sense right. grammatically. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you say, Kelke Sarasara, you're saying the things that will be, will be. And that makes much more sense. Right. But they changed it, Livingston and Evans changed it to a more sort of Spanish sounding thing by spelling it uh, Q U E S E R A S E R A. But that's not grammatically correct either, right? So they still messed it up. Yeah, for the same reason, because Italian and Spanish are both very closely related romance languages, Yeah, uh, you should say loque sera sera, same thing, the things that will be, will be. It just doesn't make sense. And again, it makes sense, but it makes sense in the way that like the Earl of Bedford probably hired a, an English translator who got his hands on an Italian dictionary, looked up the word what, and looked up the word for what, um, for what will be, will be, and then said that, didn't do any of his grammatical research and neither did Livingston and Evans. But it doesn't matter, apparently. Agreed. Uh, and that, along with our last one, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a sec, begs the question, are two that I think are often, begs the question certainly is often uh, said incorrectly, and people often also jump on it and say, you know, it, you really mean raises the question, not begs the question. Mm -hmm. I don't hear as many people when someone says, okay, sarah, sarah, saying, actually, that's grammatically incorrect. <laughs> it's true, for sure. So just a little word of friendly advice from your older friend here. Uh, if Like, correcting someone isn't super cool, but, but telling someone a cool story about an origin is another way to do it in a more tactful way. Like, instead of saying... Kesarasara is grammatically incorrect. What you could say is like, you know, Kesarasara, there's a cool story behind this. Uh, and you're still sort of correcting them, but in a gentler way. Yeah. And if you're starting out with wrong, like you right. really have some work to do. <laughs> oh, God. Go back to the drawing board. Yeah. So uh, thank you, by the way. I needed to hear that as well, um, along with the listeners you were speaking to. Because we've said begs a question before. Yeah. And I know that you've even self corrected and said, I mean, raises the question. Yeah. But it's sort of one of those things that over the years, people have, or, you know, mistranslated begs the question to where everyone gets it now. Yeah, but it, it like the way that everybody uses it, 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 which is wrong, it makes sense, which is it's a statement that raises a question. Right. And an example is um, everyone looking over the menu begs the question, what's everyone going to order? Right? Sure. That is not at all what begs the question really means. But because so many people use it that way now, that is what it means. But that means there's also an original meaning, too, that actually is, is closer to correct or at the very least worth mentioning. Yeah, and also the answer is always French onion soup, so people shouldn't even be asking anything. <laughs> I don't know. I've had some bad French onion soup, man. What? 
Yeah, I love French onion soup. Like you could put a salt lick in some with some beef bouillon cube, yeah. and I would probably like it. I've still had bad French onion soup. No, what does that mean? They just didn't uh, get a good crust on that cheese on top, or what? No, like the taste was rank. Oh, like something bad happened. But by the way, I've got to shout somebody out, Chuck. We had a listener mm-hmm. named um, Ryan, I believe. And Ryan is a chef who wrote in and said, hey, man, don't give up on your homemade beef stock. Okay. You, you left out a step. And he, he basically said, you want to reduce it by half. And I was like, that's exactly right. That's 100% right. The beef stock. Once you make the beef stock and you have it done, Uh I immediately froze it. And it was super watery and tasteless. And he said, no, you want to reduce it by half. You concentrate it Mm. and then use that. And uh, my hat's off to him for the rest of my life. So thanks a lot, Ryan, I believe, who wrote in and let me know about that. I had beef uh, bone broth for lunch. Oh, yeah. From my friends at the Oh So Good Company. I'm hoping they hear this and send me... Uh, free broth because it's expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's the, what's the name of it? Oh, so good. You get it shipped frozen, and it's really, really good quality broth. I'll take some, too. <laughs> and I was right. It was Ryan Thompson who who wrote in to let me know about that. Awesome. That's good, especially, uh, well, never mind. But we just missed, uh, we just had Thanksgiving, and I was going to say if you're going to make your turkey stock, but... By this time, when, when is this going to come out? Uh, Mid-December. All right. Well, you might make another turkey. Just sure. Reduce by half. Yes. Reduce by <laughs> half. We're going to make T-shirts that say that. Uh, can we get to Aristotle, though? Yes. Excellent idea. So we raise Aristotle because he was the one that, ra- that well, I guess, raised the original um, meaning of begs the question. And it, it's a little bit of circular logic that he pointed out that sometimes people use, right? That's right. Uh, he called it uh, petitio principi. With two Come eyes. on. That's close <laughs> enough to Italian that you could do it like that. Petitio principi. Very good. Uh, which is basically the use of an argument that uses the endpoint as proof itself. And was this your example with the ice cream? How could you tell? Well, because I've never heard of Superman ice cream, and it just sounds like something you would say. Apparently, it's Midwestern. Okay. Neapolitan. No. It's very colorful. (laughs) It's gaudy. It's in garish. It's so colorful. And the flavors are not Neapolitan flavors. Okay, okay. I thought it it meant it was divided into three different flavors. No, no. It's all swirled together. I've never heard of it. It's very pretty. Yeah, so Superman ice cream, a, a good example would be Superman ice cream is the best ice cream because it's the best. Right. That would be petitio principi, which is that you're using the point you're trying to make mm-hmm. as evidence of the point. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but people do that a lot. And Aristotle said, nine, no more. Yeah, the only time you can do that is if you're trying to be funny and just say, like, you know, the original Ghostbusters is the best because it's the best. <laughs> and then, I guess so. Then sure. you're making a joke. Unless you're eight, and I think that's who Aristotle was really targeting with this. <laughs> so here's where it gets somewhat interesting, uh, although I <laughs> also thought the other was interesting. Yeah. Uh, but in Latin, petitio principi means request the principle, uh, which means Aristotle's use of it, assuming the initial point. Right. But apparently, this was just like a bad translation, right? Yes, absolutely terrible, bad translation by some 16th century Europeans who said, oh, request the principle. Well, request also kind of means beg. 
right. in English. Sort of. And the principle, we could just substitute the question for that. Mm-hmm. And so petitio principi in English now means beg the question, even though it makes no sense, especially when you realize that it's supposed to mean request the principle or assuming the initial point. That's right. And that's it. That It's as easy as that. And as a matter of fact, it's as easy to understand as the, the popular use of be- begs the question as like a statement that raises a question. Mm-hmm. It's just not explained. Like people don't explain it unless you use it wrong and you just happen to be near a, a, a prescriptivist who, who's bonkers. Yeah. And not to yuck the per- prescriptivist yum, because mm-hmm. there are people that are very defensive of words and languages somewhat sacred. Uh, I'm not one of them, but, you know, if that's your thing, just don't be obnoxious about it. We, we need to do an episode on prescriptivist versus descriptivist. I agree. So do you want to end with this little anecdote about translations? Because you can make an, a, a case that the translation of begs the question is one of the worst of all time into English. Yeah, this is pretty fun. Uh, the great Jimmy Carter, former U.S. president in 1981, went to Japan on a visit and was getting big laughs uh, <laughs> at this anecdote he told about it, this small uh, Methodist college out in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think laughs so much that he was like, what's going on here? Yeah. And so asked the translator, like, why was everyone laughing so hard at this story that was that funny? And what did the translator say? <laughs> the translator said that um, his exact words to the public were, President Carter told a funny story. Everyone must laugh. <laughs> and the Japanese went wild. You could only do that to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> I know. I know. He, I'm sure he thought that was hilarious, of too. Of course. He's, what, a, what a great guy. He was a great guy. Is he still around? Uh, he, he's still going. He, uh, <clears throat> I believe, did Rosalind pass away? I think so, Yes. Uh, no, she's still alive, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> she's 95, and he's 98. My Lord. But, yeah, they still go to Braves games and do stuff. I think he still teaches Sunday school and all that stuff. Very cool. Yep. So that's our episode on Jimmy Carter, everybody. <laughs> we should do one on Jimmy Carter. Yeah, why not? He's definitely worth an episode. Um, you got anything else about Jimmy Carter or phrases? No, but it, a, a good listener mail that kind of dovetails by accident. Okay. Well, hold on, hold on. Since Chuck started talking about listener mail, obviously it's time for listener mail. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't even plan this. This is perfect. Uh, hey, guys, love the show. Uh, in the typewriter episode, you were making suggestions on license plates, and Chuck suggested balls out, B-A-L-Z-O-U-T. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be the right amount of vulgar, but the assumption is that balls out refers to testicles. That is not true at all. The true origin of the saying is way more fun and not at all vulgar. Many machines use a centrifugal, I hate that word, governor to regulate the speed that something is uh, spinning. Mm-hmm. In old-timey ones, you had two weighted balls on the end of sticks spinning around. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen this before, right? No. No, you, you would. If you, if you saw it, you'd recognize it. Okay. Uh, it's like two balls like spinning in a circle. I mean, I can imagine that, but sure. I can't place it under the hood of a car. <laughs> it's not in a car. This is more like a machine in a factory or something. Oh, centrifugal force. <laughs> uh, they're a classic detail to include on cartoon machinery, and you would know it if you saw it. See there? Um, the faster the machine is spinning, the further the two balls stick out to the side. 
So when a machine is running at a high speed, it's called running balls out <laughs> because the balls are sticking straight out from the sides of the governor. That's awesome. Uh, so in my mind, balls out is a fantastic custom license plate, especially if the driver tends to have a heavy foot. Again, love the show. Keep the good stuff coming. Peace from Ben. Peace, Ben. Thank you for that. That was a great one. I still cannot imagine it in any kind of machine. I don't know what he's talking about, but I understand what he means, right? Uh, just Google centrifugal governor. Okay, I will. And if you want to be like Ben and say peace, you can email us. Send it to stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.